What method should we use for interpreting Scripture? Is it different from person to person? What does Scripture mean, and how do we figure out what it means? We're going to talk about that today and more on BibleStudyPodcast.org, starting now. Very serious. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Wednesday, September 17th of 2008, and as always, I'm your host, Toby Logsdon, and of course, this being a Wednesday, we're covering another lesson on the essentials. These are the doctrines that define Christianity or which help us to define Christianity, as we're going to see today, because today we're going to be talking about the interpretation of Scripture. So uh, anyway, you know, this is going to be something that that is necessary to this study, and uh, we've got a couple more lessons left before we're completely done, but this one is definitely, definitely necessary. But anyway, I hope you guys are having a fantastic week. Today we've got a high of like 70 degrees here in Charlotte, and man, is it nice outside. I think just a couple days ago it was like 93 degrees or something like that. It was really hot a couple days ago, but man... It feels good today, but even better news is we had second showings from a couple people because, uh, as you guys might know, uh, with the credit crunch here in the United States, the Fed dropped the the rate, the interest rates, another quarter of a point. So, um, you know, maybe that'll spark some buying interest in the real estate market, but yeah, some, uh, some people came by last night to see our home, uh, and it was their second time coming to see our house, and apparently we are, according to them, on a very short list of homes that they're interested in. And then a family came today, another family came to look today, and uh, they left and went and looked at another house and called and decided that they wanted to come back and look at ours. And I just got an email from my realtor saying, cross your fingers, we've got a hot one here. So I don't know which one that's referring to, but uh, man, if you guys could just keep this in prayer for me, you know, I want to get out to Arkansas and get this church planted, uh, Mosaic Church of Northwest Arkansas is what we're going to be called, and I'll be partnering with my friend Brian and his family. And uh, man, you know, this is all in the Lord's timing, but you know, one thing is for sure, uh, you know, he knows what he's doing, and uh, I'm just trying to submit myself completely to that. I know one thing, though. Uh, this Daniel paper that I just finished that was like 21 and a half uh, single-spaced pages, I don't know if I could have done it if I was in the middle of moving. So praise the Lord in a sense that we uh, that we didn't move, that I had the time to adequately research this paper and, and you know, get it get it done in time. Anyway, God bless you guys, and thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, thank you so much for your prayers, especially for uh, for those of you who are praying for me and for my move to Arkansas. But let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer today. Father God, we just thank you so much for this study. We thank you, Lord, that we are able to understand you and uh, that we are able to discern truth. And so, Lord, we just ask that you'll help us to do that today pray that we would be drawn closer to you, that we would uh, develop a deeper understanding of you and a deeper appreciation for your word through this lesson, in order that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, we've covered a lot of doctrines and a lot of beliefs as we've gone through this study over the past two and a half or so months, give or take. But, you know, each and every doctrine that we've covered has been a necessary component or aspect of our faith for one reason or another. Some of the things that we've covered are explicitly necessary to believe for salvation, such as the belief that Jesus is God incarnate, uh, the death and resurrection of Christ are two other doctrines that one must believe in order to be saved. But we've also covered doctrines which are necessary to believe, but only implicitly necessary, such as human depravity or the inspiration of Scripture. One doesn't need to uh, to believe those things. Uh, one doesn't need to affirm any uh, implicit doctrines. But without affirming the doctrines which are implicitly necessary that we've talked about, a person's doctrinal beliefs are going to be, well, inconsistent at best. Last week, we talked about why we believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God and that it is inerrant. Uh, And I want to emphasize for you, since I really didn't get a chance to emphasize this last week, that when we say that the Bible is inerrant, we don't mean that there are no errors in any of the manuscripts of the Bible. You know, the, the Bible is derived from Uh, Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic writings. And within those writings, there are some minor discrepancies here and there. We can't deny that some of them have minor aberrations. Now, what we mean when we say that the Bible is the inerrant and inspired word of God is that the original manuscripts were inspired. That is, the exact words which were written by the author in the original Greek or Hebrew languages, or the sections of the book of Daniel, which were written in Aramaic, those are inspired texts. Our English translations are derived from those inspired and inerrant texts, but our English translations aren't always entirely accurate. But fortunately, we have over 5,700 ancient manuscripts just of, the, uh, just of the New Testament. That's not even including the Old Testament, but just of the New Testament. But we have over 5,700 ancient manuscripts from the New Testament to compare. So we know that what we get in our translation carries the message of the original writings accurately. In fact, there are absolutely no indications that our Bibles today are any different from the original writings at all. And given the fact that there is over a 99.9% correspondence rate between all of those ancient manuscripts, we can be completely confident that our Bibles today say the same things that the original writings said. Nonetheless, we didn't get our translations directly from God in the same way that the authors of Scripture did. So when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, we believe that the original manuscripts, the original writings, were inspired. But remember that Jesus proclaimed that Scripture would not be broken. So for that reason, we hold that our translations, they might not be inspired, but they are inerrant. So remember, without an inspired and inerrant Bible, we have nothing upon which we can base our beliefs. And if you'll recall, we presented the airtight argument that A, God cannot err, B, the Bible is the Word of God, and C, therefore, the Bible cannot err. Now, I actually had someone try to deny that on me this last week, but this is an airtight argument. The only way to uh, to refute this argument is to try to deny 
one of the premises. They have to deny either that God cannot err, or they have to deny that the Bible is the Word of God. And the person who was denying this was a Christian, and uh, he didn't want to deny either one of those. He just wanted to deny the conclusion that the Bible cannot err. Well, you can't deny the conclusion without denying one of the premises. So, if God cannot err, and the Bible is the Word of God, then necessarily the Bible cannot err. And while this is fundamental to our doctrinal beliefs, there's something else that is equally important, and that is the proper method of interpreting Scripture. Now, this might not seem like a big deal or anything, but I am absolutely astounded. I am amazed at how many people don't read or don't study their Bibles correctly. Have you ever been to a small group study, for example? Or or maybe you've just been in a conversation with another believer or, or just somebody else, and they ask you, what does this verse mean to you? Well, this is a completely invalid method of studying and interpreting Scripture by asking that question, what does this verse mean to you? And today, we're going to talk about why that is exactly. Christian doctrine is founded upon the literal interpretation of Scripture. Now, if you've listened to me a lot, or if you've listened to a bunch of our lessons here on BibleStudyPodcast.org, you might sometimes hear me refer to the historical grammatical method of interpretation. It's the same thing. So what does it mean to interpret the Bible literally, or with the historical grammatical method of interpretation? Well, first of all, when we say that we interpret the Bible literally, we mean that we take the literal sense of the text, the plain sense of the text, rather than a metaphorical or allegorical sense. Now, the Latin sensus literalis is the term that we derive the English word literal from, and the Latin means just that. It means the literal sense. Uh, What that means is that we understand it without having to seek a deeper meaning or a hidden meaning or anything like that. It doesn't require that you have a key or anything like that. It just means exactly what it says. It means that we take the normal, common understanding of the words just as we would in a conversation. If somebody tells you that the house is on fire, for example, you don't sit there and think to yourself, hmm, well, I wonder if they mean that we're having spaghetti for dinner. You know, no, you don't try to find a hidden meaning in the sentence. You take it literally. And either you try to smell for smoke, or you try to find the quickest way out of the house, or, you know, you take some kind of action to verify it or to get away from what they are warning you of. And like I said, you know, I sometimes refer to this as the historical grammatical method as well. The literal method is historical in the sense that we have to understand the words of Scripture in their historical context. When Paul tells Timothy to bring him his cloak and his books toward the end of the book of Second Timothy, for example, we don't interpret that to be something that applies to us. It's a first-person singular imperative. So we keep the text in its proper historical context, but that doesn't mean that things in Scripture don't apply to us in our world today. To the contrary, they do indeed, and it often requires the ability to read or comprehend Greek. Sometimes it does, but When we look for universally applicable commands, we look for the second-person plural imperatives. They usually are fairly well translated, and thus they're easy to point out, so there's no need for you to go out and start learning Greek. But if you would put uh, you all in there, that is a second-person plural. Uh, But we're to understand that there is an historical context whereby we must understand Scripture. 
The literal method can be said to be grammatical as well, in the sense that the proper meaning of a verse is found in its grammar. When we read a sentence or a verse, we understand that there is a grammatical structure to the verse. It has nouns or pronouns or verbs. It has adjectives. It has tenses, and so on and so forth. You know, only by properly understanding the grammatical structure of a sentence can we correctly interpret its meaning, whether we're talking about everyday conversation or interpreting the Bible. So the literal method also emphasizes context. Every word Every word is surrounded by other words to form a sentence. Every sentence is surrounded by other sentences to form a paragraph. Paragraphs form chapters. Chapters form entire books of the Bible. And in order to establish the meaning of a word, verse, passage, or you know what have you, we have to examine its context from the immediate to the broader context. That is, we have to, you know, the immediate context would refer to the verses surrounding it, the words surrounding it, and the broader context would be all of Scripture. And finally, the literal method of interpretation is authorial. And when we say that, what we mean is that we understand the meaning of a text is what the author was attempting to communicate. We don't determine what the meaning of a verse or passage is. The author does. We simply try to correctly understand or interpret what they were communicating. We discover the meaning of a text while the author determines the meaning of the text. And this is why I find the question, what does this verse mean to you, to be just so completely hideous. It doesn't matter what a verse means to me. All that matters is if I correctly understand what the verse is supposed to mean. All language has only one meaning, and that meaning is the meaning that was intended by the author. Otherwise, somebody is free to, you know, to listen in today and think that we're having a discussion about the football game from Monday night, and they would be just as correct as somebody who correctly believes that we're having a discussion about how to interpret the Bible correctly. So let's make a couple uh, clarifications here before we go any further. First of all, when we say that we interpret the Bible literally, we don't mean that we refuse to recognize figures of speech. Instead, we just believe that those figures of speech are supposed to communicate a literal truth. But we do recognize that there are figures of speech in Scripture. So therefore, when we read a verse like Psalm 42.9, where God is referred to as a rock, we don't believe that it's telling us that God is literally a rock. Rather, what we do is we recognize that God is like a rock in some way or in some regard. It's then our responsibility as interpreters to figure out how God is like a rock. And likewise, you know, we recognize these things called anthropomorphisms in speech. Yeah, anthropomorphisms. Try saying that five times fast. The Bible affirms that God is all-knowing, for example, but then sometimes it says something like, and God forgot. Uh, And we don't take that to mean that God literally forgot something. You know, we're not interpreting that as saying God is literally forgetting because it's impossible for God to be both all-knowing and for him to be able to forget. Rather, a phrase like, and God forgot, is an anthropomorphism which indicates that God forgives. Likewise, when the Bible says that God repented, well... It's impossible for God to repent because God does not change. Uh, and that's what we get from Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, and James chapter 1, verse 17. Instead, phrases like that are 
anthropomorphisms, which mean that the wrath of God was going to be unleashed, but means that, you know, maybe it was subdued by the repentance of man. But for one reason or another, God's actions were changed. And it's not because he changed, it's because his reaction to something changed. For example, if a person repents of their sins and accepts Jesus, the wrath of God is not brought down upon that person. And this is what we covered back in, uh, what was it, Romans chapter 5, verse 2, that video lesson that we did. Check that out if you're curious about exactly how that works. But we take the phrase, God repented, to be an anthropomorphism. The only time we take a passage figuratively, though, is when it's completely obvious by the context that it's figurative. When Jesus is referred to as the head of his church, which is his body, for example, uh, that's clearly figurative language. We also interpret figuratively when a literal interpretation would contradict things that we know to be true from either inside or outside of the Bible. For example, the four corners of the earth. Of course, there are not four corners of the earth because the earth is a sphere, but you know, we take that to be a figure of speech because we know from outside of the Bible that the earth doesn't have four corners. But you know, this can all basically be summed up this way. When the literal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, lest we result in nonsense. Likewise, when the literal sense does not make good sense, then we should seek some other sense, lest it result in nonsense. So, to clarify further, the literal sense doesn't mean that we don't recognize the use of symbols in Scripture. Uh, We recognize that there are plenty of symbols in Scripture. We recognize that symbols represent something literal, though, and we have to seek for evidence and clues which tell us what the literal truth of the symbol is is. For example, in Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, there's a lot of symbolism there. There are a lot of symbols. But the text tells us, at least to some extent, what what those things are symbolic of, what the gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay are all symbolic of. Uh, It also doesn't mean that we interpret parables to be literal. Rather, they're often, you know, figurative, but they're used to communicate a literal truth. Again, we have to look for clues either in the immediate context or elsewhere in scripture which help us figure out what the literal truth being told in the form of a parable is. And finally, the fact that all language has only one meaning does not mean that we can't get more than one application out of a verse or passage. To the contrary, if it's possible to derive multiple applications from a text, that's fine, but there's only one proper interpretation of a text, and that lies in the intent of the author. Now, in closing, there are plenty of people and plenty of groups out there who deny the necessity of reading and interpreting Scripture literally. Have you guys ever heard of Bible codes and stuff like that? There are so many interpretive problems with Bible codes and finding hidden meanings in the text. Uh, It's not possible to cover all the reasons that we reject them. But suffice to say that we reject the authority of any so-called hidden messages found in Bible codes. We also reject the esoteric interpretation of Scripture, which is the type of interpretation that uh, you'll commonly find the New Age or the mind science cults using or advocating. The esoteric method of interpretation, you know, basically 
looks for some kind of hidden meaning that's in the words of Scripture, or as they say, you know, it's behind the words in Scripture. Uh, Elizabeth Clare Prophet, for example, she taught that when Jesus told his disciples, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, that's from Matthew eleven twenty nine. Uh, according to Elizabeth Clare Prophet, Jesus was really trying to teach them about yoga. What? Well, yeah, that's the esoteric method of interpretation, which we reject for a number of reasons. And let's talk about the reasons that we reject the esoteric method of interpretation. First of all, it denies the fact that all language has only one meaning, the meaning which was intended by the author. Secondly, esotericism makes an authority out of the mind of the interpreter rather than in the words of Scripture. Thirdly, Esotericism relies on the illumination, or the supposed illumination, of the interpreter rather than on the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Fourth, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 tells us that we should set forth God's truth plainly. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. Fifth, Jesus set an example for how to properly interpret Scripture, and Jesus never interpreted anything from the Old Testament esoterically. So we reject esoteric interpretation. Now, you might also hear a Jehovah's Witness deny the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, because 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 says that God is not the author of confusion, or he's not a God of confusion. In other words, the idea of there being three persons who are of one essence, one nature, and one substance is too confusing, so therefore it can't be true. Well, that's a fine example of taking a verse out of context. The Corinthian church was having a problem with too many people doing too many things all at once, and this resulted in people being confused when they went to church. And that's the historical context. So if the Jehovah's Witnesses would use the literal method of interpretation, they would see that Paul was writing about avoiding disorder. He wasn't saying that if you don't understand something, it must not be true. What kind of a ridiculous concept is that? You know, I, I might not understand uh, advanced calculus, but that doesn't mean that there's no truth in it. I don't understand exactly how my computer works, but that doesn't mean it doesn't work. So clearly, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 isn't even talking about the Trinity. And so we see that the Jehovah's Witnesses, perhaps not so surprisingly, reject the literal historical grammatical method of interpretation. And so do the Mormons, actually. Mormons reject it as well. They believe that God is a man, a man who's been uh, glorified or exalted, rather than a spirit, because the Bible says that Moses stood face to face with God. Well, according to the Mormons, that must mean that God has a face. And if God has a face, he must have a head. And if God has a head, he must have a body. And if God has a body, he must be a man. That's their reasoning. The plain meaning of this verse, that's from Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, by the way. The plain meaning is that Moses was in the presence of God and in an intimate conversation with God. That's all that means. You know, without interpreting Scripture literally, we're basically free to believe either all of the Bible or none of it because it really has no meaning other than what we find in it. And for that reason, we affirm that the only means by which the Bible can be interpreted is by a literal interpretation, taking into account the historical and grammatical context of the verses.
So, anyway, I hope this clears it up for you guys. And if you have any questions, as always, you can email me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. And I did want to remind you guys that in the coming weeks, we're going to have clear window stickers. And for those of you who are, uh, you know, in my network on Facebook, uh, you've already seen it, uh, or you, you can see it. It's in my notes on my homepage. But uh, anyway, I'll keep you guys up to speed on that as soon as those come in. But somebody came forward and said that they would pay for us uh, to, to get these stickers to help promote our ministry. So, yeah, praise the Lord. That's, that's great. Uh, but like I said, I'll keep you guys informed as to when those come in. But anyway, God bless you guys. Uh, oh, one other, one other announcement real quick. We're going to have a Q&A this Saturday, uh, unless... Uh, you know, something goes on with the house. But, you know, everything right now is looking like we're going to have the Q&A this Saturday. So definitely keep your eyes open for that. And I'll see you guys next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. This lesson has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org, a paraministry of Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, which is a nonprofit listener-supported ministry based in Monroe, North Carolina. While our desire is that your primary giving be done with your local church, if the Lord is leading you to support our ministry, we do depend on your support to keep our ministry going and growing. If you feel the Lord calling you to support our ministry, you can go to BibleStudyPodcast.org and click on support on the right-hand side. You can make a tax-deductible donation from there. By doing so, you'll be helping us to reach multitudes of people each and every month from around the world who, just like yourself, desire to find answers and meaning in Scripture. We thank you for listening today, and we pray that the Lord blesses you and draws you closer to Him. Keep growing closer to Jesus. Thank you.